Thank you. Man, Thanks, dear, I man. was expecting like five people here with all that thunder and tornado and lightning and whatever. Uh, you I Floridians, man. You're yeah, like undaunted. You're like, yeah, it's like whatever, every five minutes. You know, that was the, appreciate that introduction, Diego. That uh, what he, he forgot to say or didn't say was that Shanti and I kind of came at all of this research, the social <laughs> research that we've been doing over the, the decades now, um, because we were just confused. Confused. She was confused about me. I was confused we are not about therapists, her. Right? <clears throat> and We're then we then we found out that everyone seemed to be confused, confused about relationship stuff. Yes. So, so great to be with you guys. We're going to start with um, our scripture for the day. We are good. If you have your Bible, we are going to go all the way back to the very beginning. It's like you know, page two of the Bible, um, Genesis two we see the institution of marriage be created. And there's this fascinating thing that happens because God has created all these wonderful things. And he looks at it and he says, it was good, it was good, it was good. And then we get to Genesis 2, verse 18, and we have this curious thing where God says, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, how many husbands in here kind of feel that? Like, it's not good for me to be, you can raise your hands, it's okay. <laughs> and the wives are going, raise your hand, honey, right? It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, switch to verse 21. This is what happens next. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. This is God presenting Adam with his wife for the very first time. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Our old pastor said the translation of this is Adam was going hubba hubba, right? Like this is Adam saying this. And she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. This is the first description of marriage and how God set it up. And, and, and what this says to us is that God values marriage. God values relationship. He values the relationship one ours with his as well as ours with others and so he instituted created the covenant of marriage so that a man and a woman would become one and later in the scriptures in in the new testament the apostle paul says that our marriage is a reflection it's intended to reflect the relationship between christ and the church. Yeah, so we are going to be uh, going through th basically three points. It's a sermon talk. Yeah, so so, uh, three points. But then there's like eight sub points. I don't know, on Pastor Mike, point. you probably have like eight sub, eight points. I don't know. Um, but we're going to go through three points with you today. The first, in talking about this institution God created, we're going to show you how much hope there is for this institution, that this covenant God created. Then we're actually going to actually tell you some data that may be a surprise about why we say that there's hope about the state of marriage today. 
And then the third thing is actually going to get a little practical. We're going to say, okay, so how do you get to that abundant relationship that God has for us? So to help us kind of put a framework around this and to understand how we kind of shift our thinking, um, I want to tell a story. Uh, Some dear friends of ours in Atlanta, about 20 years ago, um, their two-year-old son at the time was having some kind of perplexing health issues. So they decided to take him to the hospital and get him tested, various things. And the hospital ran through a battery of tests on the little guy. They were told that, you know, when the test results come back, we'll give you a call and, and let you know, you know, what the diagnosis is. So on Friday afternoon, they get a call that says, your little guy has this serious, serious medical condition, which will be kind of a progressive, debilitating condition over the course of his life. And it was devastating. They did what any parent would do. They cried. They prayed. And over the course of that weekend, as they thought about the future, his future, what it was going to look like, their future, what that meant for them, as a family, as a couple, are they going to have to sell their house to be able to pay for things? Are the like, older kids going to have, they're going to have to quit homeschooling them because of the amount of time that's going to take to care for their son? And the future looked hard. And on Monday morning, they get another call from the hospital, which essentially was, oops, we misdiagnosed it. He does have a medical problem, but it is able to be corrected with medicine with medication and and he's going to live a normal life monday afternoon their thoughts for the future were so much different than it was sunday afternoon only 24 hours earlier and the reason was because on friday they got news of his condition but it wasn't truth and today we have heard a lot of news about marriage that isn't truth. And we take action, like our friends did, based on what we believe and feel to be true. And our view of the future is changed, and we take these actions, like what would have happened if our friends would have sold their house, only to discover that this wasn't true? We take action based on what we perceive about marriage and our marriage. And so, for example, if we're feeling difficult and hopeless and problematic and we believe all these things well then it makes you know you might think it makes perfect sense from a worldly standpoint to like keep the little secret bank account on the side right like to 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 not be completely all in just to sort of protect yourself emotionally and yet those things that we do they actually build a wall and create a lack of trust and cause the problem we're trying to protect ourselves from and here's why We hear marriages are in trouble. We hear everything is falling apart. We hear there's a 50% divorce rate for first marriages. And don't even get me started on the divorce rate for remarriages, right? We hear that, oh my gosh, the rate of divorce is the same in the church. You know, that is so discouraging. We also sort of feel and we hear that this kind of says that marriage is just complicated. Like, you know, when you start getting into trouble, it is going to take a PhD in psychotherapy with a minor in mind reading to, like, to do this thing. And we think all these things, and our fear rises, and we take action based on our fear, 
And the tragic thing is that much of that is based on our sense, our news that we've heard that isn't true. Now, don't get me wrong. There are, of course, challenges in marriage. People can go through real heartache. I'm not minimizing that at all. But the truth is, God has good things for his children in this area. And the truth is, this institution, this covenant that we, that we just read, we saw God create this covenant, we haven't managed to break it. Like somehow we, we humans haven't managed to break this institution. So we're going to show you that the truth is statistically far more marriages are healthy and happy than we realize. And why it's so important not to believe the news, the negative news, is because over the 20 years that we've been doing the research into relationships, in individuals, in couples, and in parents and kids, all of those studies that we've conducted, 12 of them over those years, um, we've found kind of one consistent Common denominator. Common denominator that undergirds all of that stuff as to whether or not a, um, a relationship is in a place of kind of thriving or whether it's in a place of struggle and failing. And that common denominator is whether or not the couple has a sense of hope. Hope that we're going to make this through versus a sense of futility, meaning well, whatever we try is just probably not going to work. And you know this to be the case because if many of us, we've gone through seasons in our lives that perhaps, or in our marriages, that have been challenging. But if we have a mindset that is hopeful, that, okay, it's tough right now, but we're going to make it, then you generally do through whatever that is. But when we begin to think that all hope is lost, that it's futile, then that is when we begin to spiral and the situation certainly doesn't improve as and a result think, of that. I mean, think about it this way. If you're thinking, you know, the ship is foundering, but it's gonna, it's gonna float. Okay, then it makes sense to keep bailing it out. But once you start thinking, the ship is gonna sink anyway, so why bother spending so much of that time and energy trying to keep bailing it out like it's way better in a human sense this is what our emotions think it's way better we think to try to take all that energy and all that effort and use it to escape the wreck intact which is sort of an understandable kind of human feeling that is a sense of futility and the problem is we have a culture-wide feeling of futility about marriage that shouldn't today. be there that shouldn't be there and now, needless to say, listen, many of you have actually gone through this, have gone through the shipwreck, and I am not minimizing that. That is absolutely painful, and there is no judgment to this sort of sense that we're going to be talking about today, about the good news is better than we often think it is, and we are not saying, and so the good news means that no matter what is happening, you're in an abusive marriage, you should go down with the ship. That's, that's not what we're saying. Every situation is unique. And if you're in a really, really tough situation, this whole church is set up to help you. So please reach out to the pastors. And if that's you, get the help that you need. But the big picture, what we really want to get across, that we hope is encouraging to you, 
is just how much good news there actually is. Truth. Good news for the state of the marriage in general and good news for each of us individually in our (laughs) relationships because there are things that we can do that we may not have just realized it that can significantly enhance and improve our relationships. So let's talk about the state Okay. Of marriage. So Let's the state of the marriage. State so of marriage. the state of the marriage. Um, Shanti, <laughs> she's curious. She asks a lot of why questions. When you're married to someone who asks a lot of why questions, it can be kind of frustrating at points. <laughs> However, she's really handy because she gets to the bottom of things. And so she was curious about kind of the state of marriage and the, the all of those statistics, all of those things that she was mentioning earlier. Um, and so she conducted this research study on the divorce rate, divorce rate. and it, she wrapped it all up into this book that, that we're going to talk about a few of these myths that have made their way into our common thinking, and they don't have to be there. Now, I will say that this stuff is really, really complicated, and when she was learning it, she would run it by me and tell me things, and I, my brain just hurt. And so I'm going to let her explain all of that to you guys. I'm going to act as your tour guide, and I'm just going to ask her questions. That's my role. It's very important, but that's my role in this part of the talk. So what about this that started you on this path? Like what started Yeah, what started? Okay, so back in the day, I was a newspaper columnist. And you, you guys remember newspapers? You know, yeah, the things you would read on Saturday morning, right? So I was a newspaper columnist. And I was doing a column on divorce. This whole thing started because I was doing a column on divorce and I wanted to correctly cite the divorce rates. You know, like, you know, everybody knows it's about 50, but maybe it's, you know, 48.7. Like, I just, I wanted the real number. And so I went to the Census Bureau and the Bureau of Vital Statistics and the CDC and all the places that we keep those kinds of vital statistics. And nothing I was seeing was matching that narrative. And, I mean, I kept looking, and because of us having seen this common denominator of a sense of hope versus this culture-wide feeling of futility, I I was like, wait a minute, if this is not true, this is a really big deal. So that's where all this started. That's how it started. So, I mean, inquiring minds want to know, you know, what (laughs) is the divorce rate then? What did you find? Okay, so here's what we found. And this is, by the way, this is not a cop-out. This is the real answer to a very, very, very complicated thing. The reason it took eight years for me to do this is that it made my brain hurt, right? Like, like it's just really complex to answer that question. However, big picture, nobody knows exactly what it is. There's all sorts of reasons for that. However, we can get closer. Right now, for example, while we are sitting here talking 71% of people are still married to their first spouse. 71%. Think about that. 29% aren't, and that 29% includes everyone who was married for 50 years and their spouse died. Those are just marriages that have ended. That's death and divorce. And one of the issues is we don't know, like it depends on what the rate of widowhood and all these other factors that you can kind of crunch. But we can get a bit closer. It has to be lower than 29, uh, you know, according to this sort of looking at it. And so we we look at these different things and think maybe it's about 25% for first marriages. Now, don't get me wrong. That is still too high. 
but it is a universe different than 50, right? Because what this means, think about this. You can come alongside, let's just say you have a friend who's struggling. You can come alongside a struggling friend who's in difficulty in their marriage, and you can say, in total truth, you are gonna make it, most people do. That is a totally different feeling. Than, than flipping what, a coin. Than flipping a coin. Okay, yep. so, so help us understand, how, how did we get this 50% number in our heads so, in culture? So there's two different, well, there's a lot of reasons. There's two main reasons. One is basically, you're gonna still see, even today, you're gonna see university professor so-and-so projects a 46% divorce rate. I want you to take a pen and circle the word projects, okay? This is a projection of what they think it will be in the future, and they've been doing this for years, and we've never hit the rates that they're projecting, ever, anywhere close, actually, for society as a whole. Now, there are some high-risk groups that have hit that rate. Like, if you get married as a teenager, that group has hit the 50% divorce rate, um, but that is, it is, that is just an issue with those projections. And by the way, divorce is getting better and better and better and better. It hit a peak in 1980, and it has come down ever since, and it is still falling. The second reason why we tend to see the, the, all this bad news, right? I know this is going to shock everybody in the room, but for some reason, the media just focuses on bad news. <laughs> I know this is a shocker that, oh, by the way, um, but like there will literally be a study that has found 10 things and eight of them are positive, two of them are negative about marriage. Guess what the news focuses on? The two that are negative. Literally, there was a study that was done in Framingham, Massachusetts, and they, there was all these things that they found and there were and, some And positive. this was a study that... Um, lasted over 40 or 50 years. Yes, very long-term study. Yes, thank you. And they found some positive, they found some negative. The news screamed about the negative. And I went in and I looked at the study, and I'm like, oh my gosh, guess what the divorce rate in Framingham, Massachusetts is? Over that period over of that time. Pe I mean, guess, just take a guess. What's the divorce rate? 9.5%. Why wasn't the news shouting representative American city has a 9.5% divorce rate? This is, the, this is the good news truth that we have to know in order to encourage our marriages okay, so and our friends. Another thing that I'm certain that people have heard, you know, have you heard the... Well, the, many, uh, many have heard that the rate of divorce is the same in the church as it is in the how, world. How there's many, just, actually, there's, there's no difference. How many of you have actually heard that? I'm curious. Can you raise your hands if you've heard the rate of the divorce is the same as the church? Okay, yeah. yeah. So More than a, half, a, a, That was based on the results of a George Barna study. George Barna is kind of a national pollster, and he found that Christians had the same divorce rate, right? No. Oh. No. So, turns out, George Barna was never studying people in the church. He was calling people on the phone and people who answered in a Christian way or a Jewish way or a Muslim way, those people had the same divorce rate. So, so, so someone who identified as Christian because Correct. they were born in America, is, <laughs> yes. is, he, he, he said that they had a yes. Christian belief. They, they had this, yes, those okay. groups had the same divorce rates, but he specifically excluded whether they went to church from the analysis because that wasn't actually what he was trying to study. 
And so I partnered with Barna and I bought that data set and we re-ran all of those numbers, but with that one factor added back in of, was the person in church last week? And if the person is in church last week, and by the way, this is not just Barna, this is literally, and I'm not exaggerating this, literally every study that has ever been done has found that when you actually make faith a part of your life, when you actually do what God says and you actually don't forsake coming together, the divorce rate plummets anywhere from, depending on the study, 25 to the latest number is 58%. Compared to Compared what's to happening people, in society as a whole. To people who don't. And it's so discouraging. If we think that what God says to do doesn't matter, it can be really like, okay, what does that say about God and the Bible, right? right. And yet, what we're telling you is that what doing what God says does matter for your marriage. And so, uh, last one on this, on the state of marriage. One of the, and this is kind of a pet peeve of mine. When I <laughs> hear people describe marriage kind of to someone who's thinking about getting married, sometimes you'll even hear the, the pastor say it during a marriage ceremony. Marriage is hard. And doggone it, that just doesn't sound like the best advertisement for marriage. <laughs> so... What are they really saying and what should they be saying? So I think what we're saying is marriage takes hard work. But when we say, and we've all done this, right? When we say marriage is hard, people hear, like the young person getting married, they hear marriage is really complicated, right? You, this is where you need that PhD in psychotherapy with the minor in mind reading, right? Like it's just complicated. And I'm sorry, this institution that God created for our good and for his glory, he would not have made this unattainable. He would not have made this super duper complicated. And instead, what we see statistically in so many different studies, including some of ours, is that actually, yes, there are hard things that happen. And yes, marriage takes hard work. However, the good news is is that statistically, there are some really, really big changes that can happen with some really simple things. Little things really can make a big difference. Perfect lead in. So okay. <laughs> one of our favorite research studies was we actually surveyed and studied um, some the happiest couples, the self-identified happiest couples in their marriages. What were the practical things or the habits that they were doing that attributed and contributed to their happiness in their relationship. So the transitioning to yeah. the practical so it, stuff. It, it's all the like, stuff that we covered in this book, um, The secrets, Surprising Secrets of the Highly Happy Couples, Highly Happy Marriages. So we found 12 of these little secrets. We're going to only have time to cover a couple of them right here. But let's, let's get to in. some of those. Okay, one of the most things, one of the most crucial things that the happy couples do, all of us can do, we have to choose to believe the best of our spouse's intentions towards us, even when we're legitimately hurt. Everybody gets hurt. And yet God gives us, in Philippians 4.8, he's talking about a difficult relationship, and one of his prescriptions for how do you work that through, he says, think on whatever is lovely. Think on whatever is excellent and worthy of praise. It is really easy to do the opposite. Our human nature 
when, when Jeff does something that hurts my feelings, not that that ever happens. This I is mean, just for ever. illustration purposes. Yes, hypothetically, right? If he were to do something hypothetically that hurts my feelings, the natural human tendency is to go, ow, he knew how that would make me feel and he said it anyway. And what you don't realize that you're thinking is he doesn't care about me. That's the translation of that, right? Or maybe like for a guy, it might sound like nothing I do is ever good enough for her. She doesn't appreciate me, okay? And, and what we're thinking is that person doesn't care about me. The happiest couples, they do Philippians 4, 8. The happiest couples, they flip it and they go, no, like they still have the owl, by the way, because we can hurt each other's feelings no matter what, but they have this sense of, uh-uh, no, mm -mm. I know he loves me. I know she appreciates me, so they must not know how that would make me feel or they wouldn't have said it. And they're believing the best, not of the action, because sometimes we can hurt, right. but of the intention. And, and what is that. really fascinating is even that ow, that pain, can actually change based on what we believe about yes. our spouse. Yes. So there was a study that we found, and it was called The Power of Good Intentions. It was an ex a, a study that a um, University of Maryland professor conducted with a bunch of students you know, at the University of Maryland. And, and first off, I got to tell you, I love college students because for 20 bucks, they'll subject themselves to just about anything. <laughs> and this was one of those just about anything. So what they did was they had a student subject and they hooked all these biometric measuring devices up to this student, you know, checking pulse rate, heart rate, respiration, perspiration, blood pressure, all of those things. And to, to measure the bodily response to a certain stimuli. Here was the stimuli. They were also connected to a cable that led across the room to a partition. And behind the partition was a little device with a red button. And when the red button was pushed, it sent an electric current shock to that subject sitting in the seat. And then all these little devices measured the, the impact the on the pain body. Or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Here was the twist. That student was told one of three things about the person sitting behind the partition. In one instance, they were told that the person who is pushing that button knows that it's administering a shock. However, they've also been told that it'll help you win money. Okay. <laughs> a good Students intention. Students believe anything. A good intention. Okay. The next one, they were, the second case, they were told that the person actually hit the button on accident. Didn't mean to. And then in a third case, they were told that the person knows it'll deliver a shock and thinks that's kind of cool. <laughs> so, bad, bad motivation. Here's what happened. Here's what they found. If they thought it was that person who thought it was doing it on purpose for no good reason, the impact on the body, the pain felt, was really pretty high. If they thought it was done on accident, the pain level was lower. And if, and their body's response, and if they thought the person was doing it with a good motive in, at heart, a good intention, it was significantly lower. The, the, the shock was the same in all instances. The only thing that was different was what you believed about the party behind the partition. That's what we have in our relationship. There are times when godly Christian men and women can be jerks. <laughs> But if we, quite frankly, believe the best about them, that pain that we are is very real is less. 
Yeah. And this, by the way, this is not wishful thinking. Just so you know, statistically, that in our survey, it was something like it was nine, it wasn't 100, sadly, but it was like 99.26 something something percent of people deeply care about their spouse. By the way, even in the most difficult relationships, deeply, deeply care about their spouse. But if you want to have that thriving sense of abundance, you have to do that. Philippians 4, 8, you have to believe the best of the intentions. Next practical Second step. Second habit. Yeah. Okay. So there is something that runs all the way through scripture. I wish we could have time to like dig into this. Well, a little bit more this afternoon. All the way through scripture and all the way through science and neuroscience and the way God has wired our bodies and our brains, which is the incredible power of practicing habitual gratitude and thankfulness for your spouse. This is like 1 Thessalonians, right? Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And if you're supposed to give thanks in all circumstances, that includes for your spouse. Now, what does this like look like practically from a marriage sort of standpoint? So we've all been told, you know how you've been told don't keep score? You know what I'm talking about? Please, you guys are looking at me blankly. Do you know what I'm talking? <laughs> you know, that whole thing of don't keep score? And that's usually based on like 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrongs, right? And so what we found though is that the happiest couples did something fascinating. They absolutely kept score. They just did it totally differently because they kept score of what their spouse was giving. Isn't that interesting? The positives. The positives. They were, again, it was like that Philippians 4, 8, right? Like they were keeping track of the positives. And we were, just last weekend, we were in um, Cincinnati, and the pastor was giving an illustration. <laughs> Somebody said, woohoo, Cincinnati. <laughs> the pastor was giving an illustration of a big fight that he had had with his wife. They had four little kids, and she was on a 12-hour shift as a nurse. And um, so he had the four kids for the day, and he was like, I am going to win husband of the year today. Like, And so he's like with all the kids, and he's like, I'm vacuuming the whole house, and I'm doing all the laundry and I'm cooking everything and I'm cleaning everything and you know to win husband of the year and she comes home and she's maybe a little cranky she's exhausted okay. right like she's had a bad shift maybe she's in a bad mood and exhausted and she said something and I, I don't remember what it was but she said something that basically he took as not being sufficiently appreciative <laughs> for, for everything that he'd done because he was keeping score of what he was doing right Look at all these things that I've done. Now, flip that with me for a minute. Imagine that instead, one of their habits and one of their practices, which I think actually ended up happening eventually, was that they kept score of what the other person was giving. So the day before, let's say that he's looking at his wife and his kids are melting down and she's handling it so patiently and she's been doing this all week and he's like, oh my gosh, she is such a good mom. She's such an amazing wife. She does all this. What can I do for her? You know what? She has a shift tomorrow. Okay, so I am going to spend all day, like, I'm going to vacuum the stuff she hasn't had a time to do, and I'm going to take care of the kids, and I'm going to do this. Not because you're trying to win husband of the year and be noticed for what you're doing, but because you're so grateful 
for this other person and everything they've been giving. And then she comes home and she's like, oh my gosh, look at what he gave. Look at what he did. What can I do? And it becomes this like positive cycle. You know, this, this reminds me of my favorite verse in all of scripture is Psalm 103 two, which says, praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. The psalmist there is reminding himself about all of the amazing things that our God has done in our lives, in his life. And it's by doing that, going through our, our memory and remembering, it gives us the courage and the hope and the faith to face the future by looking back. And we can do that with, with our spouse other. in our relationship. So we can practice this. So third, third habit. Third habit. Can we do a third habit really no, let's, quick? Really okay? fast. Okay. So here's one that is so simple and it is so important. One of the things that we found with the happiest couples is that they treated each other first and foremost like best friends. And now you might ask, like, well, what is it that makes for good friendships then if, if they treat each other like best friends? There was a study done years ago about what was the number one predictor of whether individuals would become good friends. And, you know, most of us think we kind of understand or know what that would be. We think, you know, you got kind of shared interests, hobbies, or shared values or similar temperaments. All of those were good, but they paled in comparison to what the number one factor was. And the number one factor was? Geographic proximity. Really? You are the best friends with the people you see the most often and that you spend the most time with. And it turns out it is exactly the same way in marriage. And that one of the things that happens is when we get into trouble, we try to avoid conflict by avoiding each other. And instead, that's most when we need to come together and just hang out. I'll give you a quick example. One of the groups in our study group for this book, for this research project, were people who had gone from the most desperate marriages to being in that highly happy marriage. And I'm like, I wanna know what the secret sauce is. Like, how did they get from there to there? And I was talking to one young woman who was 30 years old. She had three little kids, and she and her husband had been so close to calling the divorce lawyers. And I said, what changed? She said, well, I, I looked at our schedule. She's like, I don't know why I did this, but I looked at the schedule. We were going a million different directions. And so I said, how much time do we spend with each other each week just like being friends, like just talking? talking? And she said, not, you know, not about the kids or whatever. And she said it was 15 minutes a week. And she's like, no wonder we're like at each other's throats. Like we don't even like each other. We're not even friends. And she said, what can I do? And she didn't even tell her husband that she was doing this. What can I do? And she looked at their schedule and there wasn't actually a lot that they could change at that point. But she said it was urgent. So, okay, what do I do? Well, there, my husband on Tuesdays and Thursdays takes the seven-year-old to T-ball or whatever. And she said, there is no reason in the world that I should load up and take a toddler and a baby to T-ball, except that is 20 minutes in the car on the way there and 20 minutes on the way back twice a week with my husband. And so she said at the beginning, that's all we changed. And yet it gave us a chance to catch up and what happened with that big meeting and oh my gosh, this thing that I've been meaning to tell you and it started to build their relationship again. 
And you, if this is you, if you're in that season, you can do this and become that friendship again that allows you to actually walk through a lot. So ladies, if he invites you to go to Home Depot with him. <laughs> this is a romantic saying. date. Yeah. So, I mean, we're going to be able to hopefully unpack this a bit more, a number of these little things that you can do in your relationships at the event later today. So we hope you all will come to that. And thank you for letting us talk to you today. Yeah, thank you guys.